Let's turn together this morning to 1 John chapter 5. So what I'm getting ready to say may be more meaningful for those who are not first-timers or pretty new around here, but for our newly combined Berlin Church, today marks the first day we've gone through an entire book of the Bible together. You're supposed to cheer at that, right? Uh, whenever we, whenever we th- decided that this merger was probably a pretty good idea, and all of you agreed with that, Rick and I knew that there would be uh, people who prefer Rick's preaching, and we knew that there'd be people, probably maybe a few, that would prefer mine, and we knew it would be a terrible idea to do different series, because uh, people would just show up for <laughs> one or the other, probably. So this way, and we probably should mix it up a little bit more. You just never know who's going to be up here. Um, But pretty much we go every other week, and now we have worked through an entire book of the Bible together, which is uh, a milestone for us, and so we're excited. So today we are going to come to these last several verses of 1 John 5, which I believe is a really fitting conclusion to this letter. And in these final verses, we will find both exhortation and encouragement. And truly, that's what the Bible does for us over and over. It both exhorts us, calls us to faith and repentance, but also reminds us that we are secure in the Lord Jesus and have hope because of the gospel. And so we will find that today in 1 John 5, verses 16 through 21. After today, next week, Pastor Rick is going to take a week and cover 2 John. You may have never heard a sermon on 2 John. The week following is Father's Day, and so we're going to set that aside to talk about God as Father and we as fathers, how we reflect the grace and love of our Heavenly Father. And the week after that, we will cover 3 John, and I dare say that probably no one in here has ever heard a sermon on 3 John. And then after that, we will take the rest of the summer and spend in the Psalms together. So we're looking forward to what God has for us in the coming weeks and months. I do want to say to you as we launch into these summer months, now that school is out, pay attention to one another. It's really easy during this season to kind of get lost. People are traveling. We have a number of kids playing baseball around the city today. But one of the most encouraging things that can happen to you if you miss a Sunday is to get messages from your friends to tell you that you were missed. So I say this to you on occasions, but notice each other. And don't think that you're asking, acting like some sort of evangelical Gestapo if you're following up with people. People feel loved when they're noticed. So maybe look around today and notice who's not here and follow up with them and make sure that they know that you missed them. I also want to take this opportunity to thank our deacons. They do so much behind the scenes that really very few of us even notice because we see it as routine, and that means that they're doing their job well if we don't notice, I guess, right? But thank you to all of our deacons for all of your consistent labor for us, from the refreshments each week after Sunday to setting up communion to taking care of people with benevolence issues and other kinds of matters. We are indebted to you, and so much of the heart of our church is what you do on a weekly basis. So thank you so much for the way that you serve us. And I encourage those of you who are hearing me right now to maybe reach out to a deacon or more this week, send them a note, send them a text, and let them know that they're noticed for all the things that they do to serve us. 
Our text for today, 1 John 5, verses 16 through 21, is bracketed. It's as though it has, has bookends. And that may not sound very exciting to you, so perhaps under inspiration of the Spirit, not any sort of like scriptural authority, but on the way to my, base, my son's baseball tournament this morning in Hilliard, I was thinking about how to describe this in a bit more compelling way than brackets or bookends. And so whether this was the Holy Spirit or not, I think maybe we could talk about Oreo cookies for just a moment. So let me ask you a question. Is there anybody here today who eats Oreo cookies and prefers the cookie part, the crunchy, dark part, as opposed to the middle, creamy part? You are all insane. (laughs) And that explains a lot. It is without debate that the middle part of the Oreo cookie to all sane people is the better part. In fact, when I was a kid, I would take the top part of the cookie off and and scrape the middle part out and leave the cookie behind like all sane people do. And then as I got older, there was the great invention of double-stuffed Oreos, and I think now there might even be like triple-stuffed Oreos. However, we all know that if you were to go to the store that you have to buy it in that form, right? If somewhere in the store there was just a tube of the white icing, Nobody would buy it. Now, you'd want to buy it, but you wouldn't because you would be afraid that the cashier would think you're just a glutton. So you have to have the vehicle, the Oreo cookie part, the the dark part, the crunchy part, is just a vehicle to to get the cream to your mouth. (laughs) But you eat it anyway, right? All kidding aside, this text is a bit like an Oreo cookie. And it's sort of like a triple-stuffed Oreo cookie. There's, there's the crunchy part on each end, which is exhortation. And sometimes we don't like exhortation because it can step on our toes a little bit. But in the middle, there are three encouragements or affirmations that John, under inspiration of the Spirit, truly was given and has been written down and retained for our reading and consideration today. So notice with me as we read along that at the beginning of this text in verse 16, you'll find an exhortation which goes down through verse 17. Then in verses 18 through 20, you'll find three encouragements or affirmations and then one more exhortation at the end. So let's read together God's holy word. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins That do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. 
Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And may God bless to us the reading of His Word. Rick, last week, at the end of verses 13 through 15, pointed out to us that, as John so clearly says, whatever we ask, and of course this is according to His will, as he says in verse 14, we know that we have these requests that we ask of Him. So when we discern the will of God and pray according to the will of God, we can have confidence that God will answer those prayers. So when we pray that we will grow in wisdom, God is not stingy. He delights in answering such prayers. Normally speaking, when we pray that those that we love that also love Jesus will grow in their faith and endure suffering and make it through trials, God delights in answering such prayers. <coughs> Excuse me, when we, <coughs> when we pray for illumination from the Scriptures as the Holy Spirit works in our minds and hearts, God, again, delights in answering such prayers. And in that context, John continues here in verses 16 and 17, talking about prayer. So the first thing that we will see today, the first exhortation, the, the top of the cookie sandwich, a bracket or a bookend if you prefer, is that we must be vigilant and discerning in our relationships. Sometimes it's very easy for us to come to texts like this and to sort of disassociate them from when they were written and to whom they were written. But John wrote to real people like you and like me in a real church with real problems. Most of us have been around long enough to know that, that there is no perfect church, including this one. And this was true for the church or perhaps smaller churches that John wrote to in the first century in and around the city of Ephesus. As we have been discovering as we've worked through this letter from John, there were those that had left this church or these churches. And they were characterized by one major thing, and that was that they were not holding fast to the gospel itself, that which is of preeminent importance. They were denying that Jesus Christ was fully man and fully God, and therefore the one who alone can reconcile us to God, atone for our sins, and grant us the hope of justification. They were furthermore marked by two ways of living, two negative ways of living. They were not loving as they should, for they were loving themselves. When you turn from the gospel, inevitably you become a much like a black hole. You, you suck inward. And not only were they not loving those around them, they had made themselves the center of their affections and they were ignoring the law of God, God's expectations for His people. So the first thing and the, the worst thing that they were doing is they were denying the gospel altogether. And because that's the watershed issue for every human that has ever lived, everything else starts falling. The dominoes start toppling. So because they denied the gospel, 
They were errant in the way that they were loving, and they were errant in the way that they were living. And so, of course, as you consider these people, they were known. They could have been family members of the audience of this letter. If not family members, perhaps very close friends. As the church was initially started in Ephesus and then grew probably into various congregations, it still was not the prevailing religion of the day. Christianity had taken a foothold, had taken root in pagan Ephesus, but, but still by and large, this was a city marked by pagan religion. So all the Christians probably knew each other pretty well. But what had happened by this point is that error, bad doctrine, and though this is a strong word, heresy had entered the church maybe five to six centuries beyond Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And John, as an older man, had to write to this church or these churches in Ephesus to call out these errors that had arisen. And those that had left had broken the hearts of those that had remained. Now, John had said previously in this letter, in this epistle, that they went out from them because they were not of them. But if you love someone that has left the faith, even if you find out that perhaps they were never the genuine article, it still stings, doesn't it? How many of you know someone that at one time professed faith in, in Jesus Christ, in the gospel, in, in Orthodox Christianity, but now has, has left the faith? How many? That's a lot. It breaks our hearts to see people leave us. And John wrote to real, hurting, and perplexed people who had questions. Should we pray for our friends that have left the faith, that are are teaching these dangerous doctrines, that are not living like they should live? And John has exhortations for them. And fundamentally, he wanted them to be very vigilant And the reason that I say it that way is he wanted them to watch out for one another. And ultimately, my friends, this is the heart of discipleship. Sometimes we can really make this concept of disciple-making more complicated than it needs to be. The heart of discipleship is that brothers and sisters are watching out for one another and pointing one another to the sufficiency of and all-surpassing worth of Jesus. To put it more simply, my job, not just as a pastor, but as a friend to you, is to tell you that Jesus is the only way to eternal life, and he's the only one who can make you happy. That's the essence of discipleship. And we are in this together, right? Why are we here this morning? We're not a country club church. We're not a status symbol church. We're here because because we believe fundamentally that we don't have the hope for eternal life unless it's Jesus. That's why we're here. And furthermore, we're here to say to one another, either verbally or by our presence, by, by the choices that we make, that nothing else, and more specifically, no one else, 
can satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. So husbands, what are you doing for your wives whenever you're pointing them to Christ other than that? Wives, what are you doing for your children? Fathers, what are you doing for your children as you point them to Christ on a consistent basis? You're saying to them, essentially, you have no other hope for life but, for, but Jesus and children. No one else can really make you happy ultimately but Jesus. <coughs> and as we come together as the people of God, both corporately like this morning, but individually, perhaps during the week in small groups or, or one-on-one discipleship, is that not what we're doing? We're saying to each other, thank you, Jason, consistently, Jesus is the only hope for life, and Jesus is the only one who can give me a fulfilling life. And the truth of the matter is that we struggle with this all the time because, as we'll find especially in verse 21 of this section, we're always worshiping something. We can't help it. That's the way God made us. He planted eternity into our hearts, and we crave ultimate things. The truth of the matter along the way is we try everything to fill up that void, but as Augustine said so many centuries ago, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Christ. But here in Ephesus, there were people just like us who were struggling with sin. And apparently there are some sins, in fact, probably we could say most sins, that do not lead to death. And because John consistently has been talking about eternal life and death throughout this letter, he's not talking about physical death here in verses 16 and 17, but, but spiritual death and spiritual life. Most sins we commit, in other words, will not condemn us to hell. <clears throat> we do all kinds of bad things, don't we? Now, you may not do some of the bad things that you used to do, but because you're a sinner like me, you find new ones. And the truth of the matter is, the longer we live together, and some of us are still really getting to know each other, we are going to see each other's sin. Is that surprising? Let me disabuse you of the notion that somehow we're going to reach some sort of spiritual perfection at some point. It won't happen. Just get used to it. And when you see your brother or your sister sin, or your spouse, or your children, or your grandparents, or your neighbor, and if they profess the name of Jesus, if, they, if they're banking their hope on him, generally speaking, you should pray that they will turn from that sin, and God will answer that prayer, especially in connection to what we found last week in verse 15. When you love your brother or sister in the faith, and you are helping them grow in their faith, one of the most fundamental things that you should ask for them on a consistent basis is they will turn from sin and to Christ. And according to 1 John chapter 5, if we're just taking this at face value, will God answer that prayer? And the answer is yes. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, He will produce fruit in you you will be transformed from one degree of glory to another. As the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, he who began a good work in us will, finish it with me, bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And he uses the prayers of the saints to help the saints persevere. Let me say that again. God uses the prayers of the saints to help the saints persevere. So one of your responsibilities 
And the discipleship formation of this church is to pray for the disciples, to pray for the saints. And God uses those prayers as means to bring about his sovereign purposes, which is pretty cool because we get to participate in God bringing about his sovereign plan. That's good news. <clears throat> but apparently there were people in and around Ephesus and, and probably those who had left the church these who were espousing heresy. And these Ephesian Christians were probably asking Paul or John, maybe through correspondence, should we keep praying for them? And John seems to indicate that he had given up on that. That's interesting. He does not come, come right out and say that you can't. Notice in, at the end of verse 16, he says, I do not say that one should pray for that. He, he's hedging maybe a little bit. He doesn't prohibit it. It's interesting because in the Old Testament, some of the prophets, God forbade them to pray for Israel at certain points because they were so stiff-necked. John's not quite that strong here, but he does seem to indicate when a person is outright denying Jesus Christ as the only atoner for sin, and they persist in such sinful heresy that perhaps at some point you, you give up, and you, you turn your prayer energy toward those who are following Jesus. Because we all know people who have turned from the faith, we probably have their faces flashing in front of our, our mind right now. I remember a, a couple several years ago, a number of years ago, very few of you would know who they are, and I'll be very vague, but they were persuaded by, by another religion to abandon Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, that that Jesus is the only hope for salvation, and trusting him and him alone will give us, by God's grace, the, the gift of justification and eternal life. And I remember standing on my front porch and exhorting this husband that I loved, he was like a brother, exhorting him not to go down this road that he was going down. And I'm usually not this direct, which sometimes gets me in trouble, but I, I was direct that day, and I said to him, you do know that if you're wrong, that you will go to hell. And he said to me, yes, I know that. And I've never forgotten that conversation. Our elders exhorted this family over and over to turn from their error, which was clearly unbiblical, and they wouldn't, and to this day they haven't. I saw the husband not long ago at an event, and after that, for a week or so, I prayed for him again. I had stopped praying for him for a while. His name came to mind as I was studying this passage for this week, and so I hope that God, by His grace, will, will turn this friend of mine back to the hope that Jesus alone grants us. But for you, and for all of us together today, our responsibility as we grow together in the faith is that we are helping one another turn from sin and, and to Jesus. And the promise of this passage 
is that God will use those prayers to help his people persevere. So be vigilant. Watch out for each other. But be discerning. Sometimes you have to say hard things to people. And when, when you say a hard thing to a person, graciously, I must add, and you gain your brother, it's worth it. But sometimes all of your pleading and all of your praying doesn't work, and there are times to let them go and leave them up to Christ, for He alone can change their minds and hearts. So the first exhortation for us today is that we must be very vigilant and discerning in our relationships. And, and may it be, I should say this before we move on, may it, may it be that none of us fail to finish this race. I want every single one of you to finish this race with joy. We need each other, so let us pray for one another faithfully. Now we get down into the first encouragement, the cream and the cookie sandwich. The first encouragement is this. Jesus protects His people and enables them, or us, because we are His people, to live a life of repentance and faith. So if the first exhortation is we have to be very careful and vigilant, discerning even in our relationships, the first encouragement here in this passage is that Jesus protects His people and enables us to live a life of repentance and faith. Notice once more in verse 18, John says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God, and this is Jesus, this is beautiful language. Let me read it again. Everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. This is one of the most encouraging verses in the entire canon of Scripture. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who took on flesh and died in my place, the one who is the way and the truth and the life, the one in whom is invested authority over all the earth, he protects me. And thank God for that, because if he didn't, I would be lost. I am not righteous enough. I am not disciplined enough. I am not good enough to keep myself. I'm 42 years old. I've been a Christian for a long time now. And the reason that I am here this morning is because Jesus has protected me every step of the way. And that's good news, my friends. This is one of the implications of the gospel, that Jesus who died in my place and rose again is at the right hand of the Father, and the Father will always hear the prayers of his Son. Jesus is praying for me right now. That's mind-blowing. Isn't it amazing how, how we take this for granted? That the second person of the Trinity is interceding for us right now before the God of eternity? So I say to you, saints, take heart. Jesus is protecting us and keeping us today. This reminds me of Ruth whenever she in a holy and righteous fashion flirts with Boaz. 
That's like a, a tweet that summarizes the book of Ruth, okay? And what does Boaz do? He becomes her kinsman redeemer, to use theological jargon. What's that mean? It means that he took her in. He took this vulnerable widow, this foreigner, and he gave her grace and became her protector. She went from living on the margins of society to being one who was protected for all of her life. And then God, of course, used her story to bring about his kingdom and eventually the Messiah. God is always doing far more than we can see. And the Lord Jesus is always keeping us. Now, I must admit it doesn't always feel like it, right? There are times where we feel like because of our own sin, we might just fall away. There, there are times where we feel like God may be frustrated with us or Jesus has had enough of us, but that's not the case. Jesus is always protecting us. Turn with me quickly to John chapter 10. So going back to John's gospel now, let's notice that some of the things that Jesus says about the ways that he takes care of his people. Jesus likens himself in John 10 to being a good shepherd. This is a subtle way of Jesus saying, hey, that shepherd, the Lord of Psalm 23, guess who he is? He's me. Truly, truly, I say to you, John 10, 1, he does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way. That man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, verse 4, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Look with me down in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Why is our salvation sure? Why will we persevere until the end? Why? Because Jesus will bring all of his promises to pass. Turn with me back, please, to John 17. And these are the verses that we read together a bit ago. But notice the prayer of Jesus here. And I suppose that he has prayed similar prayers millions of times. Here's how he sees us, and here's what he requests on our behalf. All mine are yours, he says to the Father in verse 10, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus prays similar prayers for you and for me today, and the Father delights in hearing them. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but 
Much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the tension of this verse is that Jesus keeps us. And then John says that those that Jesus keeps don't keep on sinning. And the ESV, if you have one in front of you today, captures that well. It's not that we never sin, but that we are not characterized by the same sins for the rest of our lives. And and that's what Paul is saying here in Philippians 2. It's a similar thought. We are to work out our own salvation, and we are to do this together. This is the process of disciple-making. We all have a role to play. We are to work at our salvation in fear and trembling. In other words, we're to watch our lives and to watch each other's lives with love, of course. But how do we know that that will work? Because it is God who works to bring about his pleasurable purposes. And what is God's pleasurable purpose? That we will share eternity with him. And so the first encouragement today is that Jesus protects his people and enables us to live a life of repentance and faith, turning from sin and to God. The second encouragement that we find in verse 19 is that we have been rescued from Satan's kingdom and have been transferred into God's. John says in 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Paul says that Satan is the God, lowercase g, of this world. God has given him sway in a certain sense. Now, he's on a leash, and God can can pull that leash tight whenever he wants to. You could also liken him to a serpent that has been dealt a mortal wound. He He will die eventually, but... He is dangerous right now as a wounded animal. But according to verse 19 of 1 John 5, we've been rescued from him. The idea of 1 John 5, 19 is that those who don't belong to Christ sort of rest numbly in the power of the evil one, and they don't even know it. And by implication, I think I should say to you that that we shouldn't be surprised when people who don't profess faith in Jesus sin, right? We are deliberate about having a number of friends in our community that that have not yet trusted Jesus. They need to hear it, and so we we spend time with them, and, and we should all be doing this, right? We shouldn't just be hanging out with Christians all the time, right? Right, okay. And if you're having trouble with that, see me afterward. I'll introduce you to some people. But my wife and I, and we have these discussions not just among ourselves, but with our children, we we say to each other and our family all the time, don't be surprised when our unbelieving friends do unbelieving things. Right? Don't be surprised when they sin. Don't be surprised when they're selfish. Don't be surprised when they posture and compare. Don't be surprised when they don't repent when they do it. They are under the sway of the evil one. And if it were not for the grace of God, you and I would be too. So God's sovereign grace in our lives gives us no room to be haughty. 
No one should be more compassionate and caring to those who are still trapped under the power of the evil one. The good news for us is we are not anymore, which is what Paul talks about in Colossians 1. Giving thanks to the Father, this is what he prayed for the Colossian believers, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This wasn't because we were good. It wasn't because we were noteworthy. It wasn't because he drafted us and needed us on his team. It's because he just chose to love us by his good grace. And I think the subtle implication here is that there are all kinds of people all around us today that need to hear this good news to be awakened to their numbness, to be awakened to the fact that they are dwelling in a kingdom of darkness, to help explain why they do the things they do and think the things that they think. We're the only ones who can tell them. And we pray for them and share the good news with them that they may turn from this. But we should take heart today, and this is why John was encouraging these Christians because there was pressure on these Christians in Ephesus. Those that they had loved had left them, had left them again, hurting and perplexed. And John says, settle down, calm down, take heart. You belong to the kingdom of the Son. The third encouragement today in verse 20 is that we have been renewed to vital, intimate union with God. Verse 20, John says, we know... He says this three times, verse 18, we know, verse 19, we know, verse 20, we know. The third affirmation, this third encouragement, this is the good cream in the middle, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Grammatically speaking, the pronoun in the sentence he is the true God and eternal life. The nearest reference to that is Jesus Christ. And almost for sure, John is giving an unequivocal affirmation of the deity of Jesus here. Jesus Christ, who is he? He is the true God and eternal life. And because of him, we have been brought into intimate, vital union with God once again. What is the good news ultimately? Now, it is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, right? That should be where we always go. So if anybody asks you, what's the good news? 1 Corinthians 15, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And if we place our faith in Jesus alone, we have the hope of eternal life. But another way that you can say that, or another way you can answer that is, the good news is that we get God back. What is the good news for us? We get God back. And that's what, 1 John 5.20 is proclaiming to us. It's what John says in First John or in his gospel in chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. For the law was given through Moses, just told us how we should and shouldn't live, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, again, a clear reference to Jesus' deity, he has made him known. Turn with me quickly back to John 17. In this same section from which we read earlier, the Lord Jesus continues in prayer and he says, I do not ask for these only, 
but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us, guys. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. What's the good news for us? Yes, we don't have to go to hell. Yes, we've been pardoned from our sins, but we get God back. And that's what John is proclaiming. And he's he's saying to these believers in Ephesus, don't lose heart. You have this intimate, vital union with God. You lack nothing. After the third encouragement, we come back to an exhortation. And with this, we close. We must not only be vigilant and discerning in regard to our relationships, but also in regard to our affections. How does John end his letter? Little children, which is a term of endearment. So I say to you, my brothers and sisters, keep yourselves from idols. Somewhere along the line, some idolatry had crept into those who had left these churches. And whatever they were treasuring eclipsed their understanding and affection for Jesus, and the gospel inevitably fell. Keep watch on your heart, which is why, again, Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 12, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. And and I say to you, because we've talked about disciple-making today, employ other people in that effort. Do it if you're strong. And the reason I say that is you're not as strong as you think you are. Any man who isolates himself, according to the Proverbs, breaks out against all sound reason. So so draw people into your journey. Those of you who recognize that you're weak, all the more make sure that you are inviting other people into that process to, to help you pay attention to what you're treasuring. Now, as I've joked with you before, it probably isn't going to be some sort of totem pole or little wooden or metal statue sitting on your mantle somewhere. Our idolatry is far more subtle. Remember that John is writing to the, the city of Ephesus where in Acts 19, the, one of the seven wonders of the world was, the temple to Artemis. Remember Acts 19? whenever the silversmiths were threatened because people were turning to the gospel, they were afraid they would lose their revenue. They were making these idols to Artemis or in Roman uh, mythology, Diana. They, they thought they were going to lose their hold and their, their, uh, their livelihood. Ephesus was, a, was an idolatrous city. Lewis Center, Powell, Delaware, Marion, Galena, Worthington, Westerville, and if I didn't name your town, you get included. They're cities of idolatry. And it may not be statues and it may not be totem poles, but we have our subtle ones, don't we? Our kids. Has there ever been a generation raising young kids that idolizes their kids more than this one? I'll let that hang out there. Uh, the idol of comfort. We know that we're not supposed to be like Scrooge McDuck swimming in our, in our money, right? No one would do that. 
Maybe you who, maybe you people who like the cookie part of the Oreo, you'd do that because you're lunatics. But, but you're not supposed to swim in your money. But we love our comfort, don't we? When anything comes and threatens our comfort, we freak out. We love influence. This is one of the subtle idols of church life. We, we like to be influential. We want to be recognized as smart or nice or fill in the blank. And John says to these Christians in Ephesus, hold fast to Jesus and don't turn to idols. And I say to you today, pay attention to the subtle stuff. Employ friends in the journey along with you to notice the subtle stuff and, and keep turning back to Jesus in faith and repentance. In Proverbs 4, 23, Solomon, who forgot this lesson, right, said, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. You need me, I need you. Let's do this together. As we close now this very precious letter from John's pen and from the inspiration of the Spirit, I put up in front of you small text, but I did it on purpose because I want you to see the structure. So remember the Oreo cookie, right? And it's black and white, so it works. There's an exhortation, there's, there's three creamy encouragements, and then there's another exhortation on the end. We need both, right? So let us practice today as God's people. Repentance where necessary. It has been said before that we are once regenerate, once born again. So once regenerate, always repenting. Get used to it. But the encouragements in the middle along the way keep us trusting Jesus. Let us do this together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, now for the glory of your name and for the good of your saints, keep us. We're so thankful for this text that promises us that you will protect us. So please keep your promises to us. Thank you for restoring us to God. Thank you for transferring us from the kingdom of darkness to your kingdom. May we be vigilant and discerning in our relationships and then also the subtle things of our hearts. So So make us holy and make us happy in yourself. Do this, we pray, in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.